everybody, and welcome to another at-home edition of the OK Guard Show. I'm still Staff Sergeant Brian Schroeder. I thought I saw an eye doctor on an Alaskan island. Turned out to be an optical illusion, because it's the string of islands off of Alaska. It's a little geography joke. My geography degree is paying off, not my comedy degree. But to make a little extra money, I do have some broken puppets for sale. No strings attached. Today, we were able to land a very special guest to answer a few of our questions about the Oklahoma National Guard's involvement in the whole of government response to COVID-19 and what the future looks like for drill and annual training coming down the pike. Okay, everybody, welcome to the OK Guard Show. We have a very special guest with us today, sir. If you would, please introduce yourself and tell us what it is you do for the Oklahoma National Guard. I'm Brigadier General Tommy Mancino. I'm an Assistant Adjutant General and the Executive Director for the Oklahoma Military Department. I also currently am uh, leading the Governor's Solution Task Force mission for COVID-19 response. Okay, so uh, talk to us a little bit about what that means working on the Governor's Task Force. So the Governor's Task Force was developed in order to operate as essentially a higher headquarters staff for the governor and his senior cabinet. We do a lot of planning and also gather information and really act as kind of an information clearinghouse for COVID-19 related issues in the state. Governor Kevin Stitt, he, he stood up that Oklahoma's whole of government response uh, March 22nd as when the JTF stood up. Uh, what are some of the different roles within the JTF? Right. So um, the Governor's Solution Task Force piece is, like you said, a, a role within the overall Joint Task Force of the JTF. So the JTF right now has 360 National Guardsmen that are out in the state of Oklahoma conducting a myriad of missions. And we'll probably get into a little bit about what each one of those mission sets are. But uh, they're doing everything from sample collection to cleaning and disinfecting of long-term care facilities to packing food in food banks and a, a number of other things as well that we'll probably talk about. Okay. Good deal. It sounds like, uh, it's almost like a big command center, the joint task force or this governor solution that, that, uh, you are in charge of, uh, and in working in a large command center room like that, you're really limited on the amount of space. You can social distance. Uh, have you implemented or has any, any of the soldiers that are there and airmen that are there taking on any unique practices to help maintain the social distancing and, and personal hygiene? So I think we've probably gone through five tons of hand sanitizer. Um, <laughs> so in addition to hand washing, we're also conducting social distancing and uh, we're not conducting interviews or working uh, a little bit separated. Many of us will wear masks. Uh, in order just to practice good hygiene, you know, good quarantine hygiene, if you will. Um, but as you said, as you alluded to, you know, it, this is a situation in which we are, uh, by the nature, subject to a little more risk than we would otherwise, because there is a mission that has to go on. And so our soldiers and airmen come to work gladly, even during the worst times of the pandemic, when there was a lot of unknowns about the disease and its progression and who it was affecting. And they still came to work every day, did their job, and very proud of that. Talk to me a little bit about 
about that aspect of people just volunteering and coming in and wanting to be part of this COVID-19 response. What does that mean as one of the, the leaders of the Oklahoma National Guard to have people respond to COVID-19 that are in the Guard that way? I've been in the National Guard now for 33 years and have been associated with a lot of uh, disasters. Katrina, rural building bombing, uh, more tornado. Every time there's one of these disasters that impacts a community, that's really when the guard shines. Our soldiers are all uh, always motivated to go do their duty overseas. There's nothing quite like the response that National Guardsmen give in their community because we are members of the community. So we really are. I've heard soldiers repeatedly say, and airmen, excuse me, say repeatedly that uh, this is exactly why they signed up. I've heard multiple uh, airmen and soldiers tell me that exact statement. This is exactly the kind of thing they signed up to do. It's why they joined the National Guard. And they've been very willing to get out there and contribute to helping others in the community during this time of stress. Like you said, a lot of people volunteered to do that type of thing. They joined the National Guard to help out their communities. And, you know, Oklahoma, every year we brace for that that tornado that's going to hit and, and people are ready to respond. Last year it was the flooding and people were ready to respond and help out their neighbor with it being a virus. It's still great seeing people standing up and wanting to get out there and do what they can as guardsmen. I think it's a, a important distinction that you made. Usually when the national guard is activated, we're going to a very specific geographic location. This truly is uh, to, to capture governor Stitt's phrase of all of state response. We have soldiers uh, in the four corners of Oklahoma right now and out of the Panhandle and Guymon and other places. So we're really spread throughout the state. The other distinction I'd make in this, pan this pandemic versus other disasters is this is an ongoing disaster and an ongoing um, threat to the populace and our soldiers and airmen. Usually a tornado comes through, the tornado's done. We're responding. Uh, the floods occur, for the most part, they're done, you know, and we're responding. This is an ongoing threat, and it makes it really a distinct situation. No, it really does, and it takes a unique skill set almost to to be able to do something like this and to respond as, as guardsmen. So you said that there are guardsmen on in every corner of the state. Uh, what parts of the of the community are they serving? Is it primarily working in retirement villages? Are they working with local uh, health departments? Um, and also, is it just medics that are out there, or are there other military occupations helping out? So all of the above, and it's definitely more than just our medics. Although our medics are doing a great job. Um, we have soldiers and airmen that are running the gambit of mission sets. Like I said, the, the main mission sets that we have out there right now are here at the headquarters or the uh, MAC, as we call it, um, for multi-agency coordination cell. That's the official name of what we do here. Um, those are mostly staff officers. Out in the field, we have airmen at the two regional food banks, one in Oklahoma City and one in Tulsa, and they are out there setting efficiency records. They've packed more than 1,200 cases of food, totaling 700,000 pounds of food um, wow. to be shipped throughout the state. We've cleaned in excess now of 30 uh, nursing home facilities or long-term care health facilities. And as you indicated, our medics uh, and other support staff are out there. They've driven more than 100,000 miles and delivered more than 20,000 
virus samples throughout the state. So those numbers are all very impressive. We're all very proud of their efforts and it's uh, really amazing what they've accomplished in uh, a little over 45 days now. Governor Kevin Stitt issued the Safer at Home order March 24th. 31 days later, the governor began the three-phase reopening of the state with phase two set to start May 15th. Does this mean that the coronavirus is gone and guard members are no longer needed to assist the community? Um, that's a great question. And the answer is uh, no to is it gone and yes to the guard. And as Governor Stitt has alluded to uh, in almost every one of his press conference, he is very aware that the virus remains out in Oklahoma, that it is a threat. Um, it's a very complicated trade-off in which he's having to make decisions about opening the state vis-a-vis uh, -vis keeping it locked down. Clearly, if you kept it locked down, you're going to have a lower incident rate or chance of a hot spot opening up or viral spread. However, it's also true that uh, the economy of the state uh, is very strapped right now, uh, going on 30 days plus now of, of this lockdown, and that there is a tension, a dual tension between safety and the economy. And that's the balancing act he's having to do every day. That's the data that we try to provide him as to uh, what's going on so that he can make those kinds of difficult decisions. Yeah, I would not want to be in his shoes to decide if people or money is more important. I know it's a lot more complicated than that, but that's kind of a lot of people see it that way. A lot of people are ready to get back to work because they need to make money to pay their bills. A lot of people are worried about this carrying on throughout the rest of this year and into next year. So it's it's conflict both ways. And I definitely would not want to be wearing those shoes to make those decisions. The very first thing I said when I walked into the headquarters and gathered my staff for the first time, I said that everything that we do before this pandemic hits, because this was even before it had actually officially hit here in Oklahoma, I said, well, you will be considered paranoid. And everything that you didn't do, you will be considered negligent. And so the balance there is, is quite simply do everything you can early when there is an uncertainty as to the effect. Now we have much more data. Uh, for instance, the median age in Oklahoma is 36.6 years old. So the 4 million people in Oklahoma, approximately 2 million of them are 36 or younger. Uh, 36 and younger is an age group that is not strongly affected by coronavirus. There have been five deaths in that age group uh, in all of Oklahoma. And unfortunately, every death is precious. But those five people, four of them had um, either diabetes or other serious illnesses. So we have a situation in which a certain part of the population must be protected, and that's people with those comorbid uh, diseases such as diabetes or obesity, and the elderly over the age of 65 plus, especially in our nursing home and nursing care facilities. So this dichotomy that exists that we weren't sure was going to be out there is there, and it adds to the pressure that we've been talking and this, this may dip into a little more uh, medically-minded questions, uh, but with Oklahoma having such high rates of diabetes and heart disease in, in all age groups, is that a concern 
These are important factors. These are the kinds of hard decisions that have to be made. And absolutely, Oklahoma has the higher death rate uh, per capita than other similar states. Not dramatically higher, but slightly higher. And the, the reasons for that are probably attributable to uh, factors like obesity and diabetes. Uh, again, it's heavily, heavily skewed in the 60-plus age group. So the, many, many people uh, will contract the virus. Many will be asymptomatic. The elderly and those with comorbids are, are adversely, dramatically impacted. And that, if you look at uh, the death rates, I think there's been, off the top of my head, this may be a little old data, but not too old, approximately, only approximately 20 people uh, had died under the age of about 60 to 65. And every, so all the other deaths that we see, unfortunately, are, are every day in the 65 plus age group. And uh, that's just an age group that is dramatically impacted by this virus. And that's why we must do everything we can. A safer at home uh, strategy that the governor's enacted is geared to that. Um, it is, you know, a request for people that are older or have those comorbids to stay home until we have an opportunity to develop a vaccine or a cure or a treatment. So uh, having experience commanding troops on a battlefield in a foreign land, from your perspective, how is tracking Oklahoma National Guard's response to a pandemic similar and or different to tracking the enemy on a battlefield? Well, if the coronavirus is an enemy, it's a wily enemy at that. Um, but as far as what we do day to day, it's very similar. Uh, and I think that's one of the things that lets the guard kind of seamlessly slide into a command and control role in a pandemic or another natural disaster. We have a lot of what I call cross-domain competency. We can take it just about any situation from... Um, potentially alien invasion to pandemic to uh, war in Afghanistan. And we apply the same general processes to it. We have the same command and control infrastructure and support structures in place to deal with those kind of events. So that really let us kind of slide into a pandemic. Whereas none of us had ever experienced anything like this, of course, um, we had enough similarities with things that we have dealt with. You know, for example, early on reporting was a significant um, we would be getting reporting from hospitals. And we quickly, me and my staff, were able to evaluate that and say that without some oversight or assistance that the hospitals were going to likely not report accurately. That's just the same thing that you would experience in the battlefield, for instance, when units are out engaged in uh, the fight, like we say, or out in the field. You know, reporting back to the headquarters isn't the highest priority. But it's hugely important to get accurate data back to the commander, or in this case, uh, Governor Stitt, because he's using that data to drive decisions that he's making. So we put a lot of effort very early into that and went from about a 50 to 60 percent uh, accuracy in overall reporting rate to as high as 99 percent last week one day. So, When you say 99 percent reporting rate, that's from all hospitals? So 99 out of 100 hospitals reported. Okay, okay. That doesn't speak to the accuracy of the reporting, but it shows a metric of improvement in the actual reporting itself. So gotcha. we're very happy with that. And I will say that the quality of reporting has gone up uh, in parallel as well. So for, for instances like this, different emergencies and things like that, the Oklahoma National Guard works 
real closely with emergency managers and other local uh, first responder agencies. Does the Oklahoma National Guard with and working with those agencies, did they have a contingency plan for something like this? Because like we spoke about, tornadoes are very common in Oklahoma, so there's always an annual conference or you're always staying up to date on those types of uh, TTPs, if you will. Was there anything like like that for responding to uh, a pandemic? There was, but another okay. common saying we have in the Army is, or in the military, is that uh, no plan survives first contact with the enemy. Uh, in this case, again, that enemy being the virus, uh, COVID-19, and it's a very wily enemy, and the plan, I would say, quickly did not survive contact with the enemy. Uh, and you might add, and you might wonder why. We have plans for all kinds of disaster contingencies in Oklahoma. Um, but the scale and scope of this was unprecedented. I mean, it, you know, a tornado, as I said, usually hits a, a city or a, a county and is isolated geographically. So we can respond and bring all the resources to bear on that. Here, all the resources were needed everywhere at the same time. And the plans just broke down under that weight. But we have been working with the emergency managers in each of the counties through uh, through Mr. Gower here, who's the state emergency managing officer and coordinator, and his office uh, is is a close partner with ours. The lead agency in uh, pandemic is actually the Oklahoma State Department of Health, and we've just had a great relationship. We've got Colonel Keith Reed, who is uh, a deputy at the health department and is also a colonel in the Air National Guard, and that's just something that uh, we've been able to bring to bear. Uh, in multiple instances where we've had key players in the emergency response community also being the National Guard. And that's just dramatically improved our ability to operate and respond to this. Okay. So with us closely approaching the second phase of the three-phase reopening of the state, what does this mean for Title 32 and Title 5 employees, uh, Active Guard Reserve employees, and state employees? Is there a gradual phasing in of workers? Yeah, so uh, the current plan as articulated uh, just today, it came out today as a matter of fact, is that guardsmen will be returning uh, to work on the 18th, I want to say, if I've got that right. And that'll be as state employees as well as uh, federal technicians and Title 10 AGR. Um, as far as what it means for Title 32, I think we're still that that's still a little bit up in the air as to the as to the immediate future of drill status and ATs. With all that's being worked out, uh, my personal opinion is you will see us transition back to a normal or relatively normal drill status. We may take certain uh, common sense precautions and other things, but we do maintain a a, a need to conduct uh, training and operations, and I think we'll continue to do that. Again, the, the median age of 36.6 years and younger, the majority of our soldiers are healthy. They fall into that category. Should they be infected with COVID-19, and they, they may or may not even be symptomatic, if they are symptomatic, it would probably be like the worst case of the flu they've ever had. That being said, I don't want anyone to go out and think that they can uh, haphazardly 
uh, violate social distancing rules or not wear a mask, et cetera. The reason we do a lot of those things, if you're in that age group, is to protect those in those populations, your mother, your father, your grandmother, your grandfather, mm-hmm. or somebody in your family or near peer group that may have a comorbid. So not saying that. However, I'm saying I think that we can get back to a semblance of normalcy uh, as far as drills and operations go with a few common sense precautions. Okay. And I'm over 50, so I'm not in that group. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you had mentioned uh, common sense precautions. Uh, common sense is kind of one of those things I feel like that is up to interpretation these days. Um, what would you say are common sense precautions that you will recommend the guard take as we come back together as a unit? Well, I'm going to I'm going to utilize some 33 years of military experience here and I'm not going to give that exact answer and I'll tell you why. I think this is something that should be very dependent on commanders. I think we we have excellent commanders in the National Guard and I think those commanders working in conjunction with the adjutant general will come up with the plans that best fit their requirements. Clearly we have some units that simply don't need to go to the field or be in close proximity with each other to get their job done. Those units should act differently than those that are maybe the infantry brigade that's planning for an AT in preparation next year for, to go into NTC, or units that may find themselves still going into combat in the next 12 to 18 months on deployment. So each individual unit needs to assess its requirements and come up, have its commanders come up with an appropriate I could give you an example of maybe in the headquarters that we would maintain social distancing and wear masks and maybe even work from home or do a virtual drill. That may very well work for the JF, you know, JFHQ headquarters staff. Uh, it would be a very different situation in the, you know, Charlie Company 179. So we need to let each commander have some flexibility. April and May, the Oklahoma National Guard was able to maintain its readiness despite COVID-19 by conducting virtual drills. And there very well may be um, a continuation of virtual drills for some units. I think that, that you know, depending on the situation um, that we find ourselves in, and that's something we haven't addressed, you know, we are still very much watching this virus, watching how it reacts to our actions and prepared to take whatever response is called for. So if we were to see a, a second surge, we would uh, then, you know, be in the situation where once again the tag would be making an evaluation, weighing the equities to determine what needs to happen. Our governor stood himself, you know, may start giving some directions, uh, mm-hmm. closing things back down. You know, it may be potentially geographic, but it's not like we think that this is over and we're flipping a switch. And I know you're not saying that as well, but I just want to make that make that clear again that, that we're very much aware. You know, I'm aware of the history. I've, I've read several books now on the 1917-1918 pandemic. I understand the epidemiological theory behind it, and I understand that the epidemiologists are all warning us that we may face an additional uh, wave, especially in the fall, and we're just watching it and evaluating it. Uh, and just like the governor is, you know, he's, he's, he's doing the best making the best decisions he can with the information he has on hand for Oklahoma. And we're doing the same thing for the National Guard. We're staying on top of the fight, making sure that we know when to respond and, and how to respond appropriately when things, if things do, kick back off uh, later on. So that's that's good information for everybody to know. So in your opinion, 
when do you think life will get back to normal and what do you think that will look like? I think that's hard to say. I think there will be periods of normalcy that we go that we go through um, this summer. If you know there is a possibility, again, I have no knowledge, but a possibility that the virus may retreat during the summer months uh, and return in the fall, potentially with a vengeance. So this summer, there may be periods of relative normalcy. Uh, I think a lot of what will happen will depend on our ability to create vaccines or treatments that are effective, especially in those most at-risk populations that we've talked about. And we just need to see how well uh, people can adapt uh, to this new situation. However, I am a strong proponent and believer in that we will get back to what quote unquote is normal um, relatively soon. And that may be a year, but that'll be, when you're 50, it's a year isn't as long as it is when you're 18. <laughs> <laughs> what positives do you see coming out of all of this? A lot of people have suffered many hardships, whether it's losing a job, um, not being able to work, perhaps even losing loved ones uh, to the virus. What positives do you see coming out of, of this whole situation that we now find ourselves in? You know, I do hope that it has rejuvenated a sense of community or a sense of oneness uh, that we are all in this together. I know that catchphrase that's been bannered around, but I do think it's true. You know, a pandemic crosses political lines, it crosses socioeconomic lines, it affects all of us. Um, and like you said, you know, we, as, as a community, we just really have to come together and support those that have lost loved ones or that have lost jobs. And I think we will. I, I really think, especially in the economic context, um, this is all my personal opinion, I think that we will see a strong resurgence economically as we are able to uh, open back up with a phased approach. And, um, what will, what, what will stymie that, or at least slow it down, would be another ma uh, major resurgence of the virus. Um, the issue with the resurgence of the virus is twofold. One is if it gets into populations that are susceptible to 65 plus, or, or those individuals that have comorbids, then it's quite, it, it can be uh, a devastating and deadly virus. Um, if we can protect those populations, limit the exposure of everybody else and keep the overall case count at a relatively controllable or manageable level, then I hope that we can buy the time necessary to develop those vaccines ultimately and, and treatments. Yeah, it's really tough to say. You want to be positive about it, but you also have to have a bit of realism. And honestly, I my hope for the whole thing is that people come out, like you were saying, and have a better sense of community and we really do rely on each other, regardless of, uh, uh, you know, as you said, the virus doesn't discriminate against political views, religious views. It just attacks human beings. So hopefully we can come together more so as human beings once this is all done. So what recommendations do you have for Oklahomans as we venture back into public communal life? My recommendation, I would just parrot some of the things that you said too, and that we've spoken about together is uh, be vigilant. You know, keep an eye out. The virus has not gone away. Um, 
if you expose yourself unnecessarily to risk and you are in that 36 and younger age group, let's say, uh, just be aware that, well, you may not uh, suffer a devastating impact from the virus itself. You may transmit those to others that do. So I would hope everyone continues to follow uh, the guidance that's given. It's given for a reason. It's good medical guidance. Uh, it's somewhat simplistic sometimes, but wash your hands, uh, use your gel, and wear a mask if you're in public and try to maintain that social, you know, if you can't maintain social distancing, wear a mask. Uh, I think those are all common sense, easy things we can all do to not stop the spread of the virus, but to slow it to keep it from getting out of control and once again, threatening the capacity of our healthcare system to tend to those that are sick. Great words of wisdom, sir. General Mencino, we appreciate you coming on the show today. Is there anything you would like to add? Just a, a shout out, if you will, if I can say that, I'm over 50 again, uh, to our soldiers, airmen, and all of the people that are on the front lines, the healthcare workers, those workers that are working in the long-term care facilities, they're oftentimes uh, overlooked, but they do yeoman's work, and uh, all of those folks are my personal heroes. They have just simply come up to do an outstanding job in a very dangerous environment during a dangerous time. I couldn't be more proud of all of them. Outstanding, sir. Well, thank you again for coming on the show and giving us a little bit of your time and some insight as to what the Oklahoma Guard is doing to help out all of Oklahoma during this COVID pandemic. My pleasure. Thanks. Thank you for joining us today. Please make sure to like the Oklahoma National Guard on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and see more of our photos of our Oklahoma National Guard men and women working the front lines of COVID-19 response in Oklahoma on our Flickr page. Also, make sure to subscribe to the Oklahoma National Guard YouTube page and stay up to date with the latest The OK Guard Show release on Podbean or any platform you use to get your podcasts. If you have a suggestion for the point of the episode, please send us a message on social media. Until then, have a great, healthy, and safe day. The OK Guard Show is produced by the Oklahoma National Guard Public Affairs Office. Any mention of products or brands does not imply endorsement. All guests on the show are volunteers in an effort to inform and educate members of the Oklahoma National Guard, their families, retirees, potential recruits, and the community.